Welcome to Steam Powered, where I have conversations with women in Steam to learn a little bit about what they do and who they are. I'm your host, Michelle Ong. My guest today is Dr. Blake Chapman. Blake is a science communicator who loves all things marine, especially sharks. She has a PhD in shark neuroscience and development and is passionate about communicating about shark behaviours and the myths and misconceptions around shark attacks. Join us as we talk about sharks, shark attacks and Blake's enthusiasm for science communication. Welcome, Blake. Thank you so much for joining me today on SteamPod. It's wonderful to speak to you today. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited about the chat. <laughs> oh, yeah, me too. Like, there's just so much to cover. I, you know, hopefully, you know, we get to talk about all these really cool things. So what drew you to the field of marine biology to begin with? Well, yeah, I, I've always just really had a passion for the water. I've loved the water. So I was a swimmer when I grew up. So, you know, I didn't care if it was a pool, if it was a lake, if it was the ocean. I just loved being in the water and I felt really comfortable in the water. Um, but then I also just did develop this really, um, really big pull to the ocean. So my family used to go to the beach every year for holidays. So the ocean has quite a sentimental meaning to me uh, because that was our family time. It was the time, the one week of the year where we'd all come together and you know, my dad would forget about work for a while and, and we'd just hang out as a family. And I loved it. Um, and then, you know, as I got older, it started to have even more meaning to me because I was starting to realize that this was just this big, wild place out there. And there's just so many things that I couldn't understand. And I'm, I'm a very curious person. So it just intrigued me. And I wanted to know more. I wanted to understand more about what lived there, how it worked. And so, yeah, I guess my passion just developed from there. And, and then... I started watching a documentary on sharks. I won't name any names about what that might have been. <laughs> and I, again, my curiosity started to, to just sort of tug on me a little bit. And I realized, you know, we, we don't know a lot about these animals. And a lot of the things that we hear, I'm not sure that it's actually true. And so it just inspired me to, to really want to understand these animals more, to, to just learn about them, to know know what we were thinking about, know what we were hearing. And the more I learned, the more I realized most of the stuff that we're hearing isn't actually true. And so then that drove me to want to talk to people and want to communicate and, and start to rectify some of these uh, misunderstandings. Oh, wow. That's amazing. So when you started to, you know, when you wanted to study marine biology, where did you see yourself afterwards? Uh, was it always going to be about the communication for shark protection or you know, did you see yourself doing other things with it? I wish that I could say I had a plan. Um, <laughs> unfortunately, I wasn't such a good planner when I was younger. Um, I knew that I loved sharks. I knew that I loved the ocean. And I knew that I wanted to do something. <laughs> that was really, that was sort of the extent of my planning at that stage. So when I went into undergraduate university, uh, I, I did have this passion for sharks. And so I went into biology. Uh, I did my undergraduate degree in America where I was born and where I grew up. And degrees are very different there to what they are here in Australia. Um, it's very general. So biology was only about a third of the degree that I did. Um, but I also had to do a lot of just general studies and then also some, some of the core subjects. I still did English. I still did 
you know, pretty, pretty much everything you can think of. I took a dance class. I, I got my scuba diving um, certification while I was doing my undergraduate studies. So it was just very broad. Um, but then I started to focus down. And again, my core through all of this was that I wanted to study sharks. So once I finished my undergraduate degree, I, it was then that I moved to Australia. And again, the drive was sharks. And I just happened to get into a neuroscience laboratory. And so um, that was my introduction to neuroscience. And I studied shark vision. Um, and that, again, led me to just really want to be more hands-on. So I had a little bit of experience working with the sharks. But my next step was I wanted to go out and, and be a bit more hands-on. So I then went into industry. Um, and I worked at a public aquarium. So my path has been a little bit, it's, it's never really been directed <laughs> in a single way. It was more collecting these experiences that um, for, for some time, it, it did make my life a little bit challenging in that I didn't have that clear path. But now looking back on it, the different opportunities that it's opened up to me and the different experiences that I've had have, have just been amazing. And exactly. For a while, I thought, oh, I wish I had done this differently. But being where I am now, I'm so glad that I did what I did. Yeah, well, all the experiences that you've had just kind of lead you towards that focus. So, you know, without that, you would have been somewhere else entirely. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's brilliant. So why specifically the neuros shark neuroscience for your PhD? Like it, it's, I mean, I understand like because it's misconceptions, you want to understand, you want to be able to delve into it. But, you know, it's... Is it a common sort of research area for sharks? A little bit. So sharks can be, in some circumstances, very large, very powerful animals. They don't easily lend themselves to being kept in captivity. So for many terrestrial animals, we can either study them in lab settings or we can keep them in zoos or wildlife reserves where we have reasonable access to them and where we can follow them around. Um, our, our studies of marine animals doesn't necessarily <laughs> work that way. So yeah, there's, there's over 500 different species of sharks. So one of the things that I try to, to drive into any conversation that I have is there is no typical shark. That is a huge myth. You have every different shape, size, body plan, color of sharks imaginable. Uh, but you know, when I talk about sharks, mostly I'm talking about the ones that people are concerned about. Um, and so for, for human interest, you can't keep great white sharks in an aquarium. <laughs> um, you can't keep tiger sharks for too long. Some places have kept them for a little while, but you know, they get very big. They, they need to move around. So it actually does come down to a lot of things that we can infer about these animals. And one way that we can infer some things is through sensory biology. So for my honors and PhD, I was looking at how shark's eyes developed. I was in an evolutionary lab, so sharks being a very ancient lineage of animals, pretty much one of the oldest vertebrates that we have alive on this planet now, that was where they sort of fit into the lab group. Um, but we were looking at how their eyes developed and how they are able to fit into their ecosystems and function in their environments through their sensory biology. So what can they see? How do they focus? So, you know, do they tend to stay on the bottom and then come up as they're looking for food? Or so, you know, where where do they have their best sensory capabilities? And it just it just helps us to understand the nature of these animals and what they're capable of doing. 
Um, one of the things that we were looking at was color vision. So that of course has, you know, there's a there's a idea in the field about yum yum yellow. I don't know if you've heard about that. No, I haven't. Um, Tell me. But it's it's quite a an old concept um, that was that came about through the U.S. military, and they were finding that people who were wearing these bright yellow life vests were oh, yes. more of a focus of attention of sharks. <laughs> um, but we have found that sharks don't don't really have color vision in the sense that we think of it. They can still see different brightness and different intensity. So there's that you know, slight discrepancy between colors, but in the way that we think of color vision, uh, we don't believe that sharks are actually capable of that. So it's, it's not an uncommon thing for certain animals and um, different marine animals have gained that ability and lost it. So you know, very closely related stingrays, for example, do have color vision. Um, but those are some of the things that you know, we're making these um, inferences and, and assumptions based on what we can see through studying their eyes, for example, as a proxy for understanding the animals as a whole. That's that's very interesting. Like I, I, I actually heard the yum yum yellow thing, but forgot about it just because it just, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it, it reminded me of um, quite a few years ago, uh, people, or I think a bunch of surfers or something had come up with shark camo um, wetsuits. Yep. So was that, do you know about that stuff? I do. So um, that was developed by some of the, the researchers who I used to work with. Um, yeah. Cool. And I guess there's there's been a couple of different iterations of this, um, but it's all about trying to understand again, how these animals see and how they perceive other things in their world. So there's a lot of things around color and patterns in nature, not just sharks. But if you can mimic something that is a threat to the animals, then they're more likely to stay away from it. Um, with sharks, that idea is, I'm not quite sure that I follow that one because there's not too many <laughs> things out there that threaten sharks. And that being said, there are some mitigation techniques that uh, revolve on orca calls. So um, if they can mirror the call of an orca, because we do know that they are actually natural predators of great white sharks. So things like that. But um, as far as <laughs> the visual <laughs> side of things, um, you know, some of the wetsuits that I've seen are banded like sea snakes, and sea snakes are a preferred food item for tiger sharks. <laughs> so, so some of the things, I'm, I'm not too sure that that would work. But then some of the camo wetsuits, they were really um, specifically designed around some of the different functionalities of shark vision. So how they are able to see things, how they're able to see patterns, and how they're able or unable to discriminate between slight differences in color. So the whole idea was to break apart a silhouette because again, there's there's this idea that um, misidentification, I suppose. So if you look at a surfer laying on a surfboard with their arms flapping over the side and their legs, then there was this idea that um, they might look a bit like a seal or even a sea turtle from a silhouette. So if the shark is swimming along the bottom and they're just getting this outline, then there could be room for um, misidentification there. Yeah. That theory is, is I, I can't prove it wrong, and I don't think anyone can <laughs> prove it wrong. It's, it's an idea, but most sharks have pretty good eyesight. So I think that there would be some um, differentiation there. But the idea of the sweatsuit was to, to break up that silhouette so that sharks wouldn't really even be seeing a silhouette so much. So the, the concept is really sound, I think. Um, the problem in those sorts of things lies in the fact that there are so many different species of sharks 
and they rely on their different sensory systems differently. So what one might see, another one might not be seeing the same thing. So with any sort of protective device against sharks, you have to be very careful to understand the exact species that are going to be where you are. And in some cases, there could be multiple ones. So you do have to kind of have that in the back of your mind if you're relying on these um, different <laughs> mitigation measures. Yeah, but you know, all very interesting and novel ways of trying to approach the problem. Just, yeah. Yeah, cool. and I love it. I love the creativity around some of these things because we don't know. And yeah, people often ask me about different strategies. And I think, well, you've got to try. You know, <laughs> So many of them are bound to fail, but until you try, you don't really know what's going to work or not. And yeah, I think I think it's always a really good strategy to be creative and to just see what see what comes out. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, just so many different things. Yeah, you know, because we don't know, as you said, it's all inference. So you don't know until you get, yeah try it up. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And we still don't know. I mean, there's so much that we're still learning about how how these animals are are sensing their environment and what's motivating them. How has research been conducted to try and kind of figure out these little details that we still don't know? <laughs> uh, with a lot of complexity. <laughs> um, so there are the different sensory studies. And to an extent, we can use um, different bits of tissue, so different bits of the animal, which um, in some cases, unfortunately, means that we have to, to kill the animals first, which is yeah. something that's, that's not obviously a good thing. And, and we try to avoid that as much as possible. Um, so to do that, we might then use smaller species of sharks. So for my PhD, I use quite a small uh, shark. But then again, we're having to assume that what is happening with that one animal is going to be happening more broadly. Um, otherwise, we are starting to get better at uh, tracking sharks and through our different monitoring strategies. So there's all different tags now that can record um, either external tags or internal tags that can record where a shark has been, where it's going, the temperature range, when it's eating, how quickly it's swimming, which informs what its motivations in those areas might be. So the technology, I mean, it's it's all going to come down to just better and better technology and you know, more, more just getting out there and studying them. Um, so it is quite an exciting space, but it is it's very time consuming. Like none of these oh, things yes. are going to happen overnight because no. you know, it is hard to first find these animals and then to take the time to track them. And for a lot of our larger, more mobile species, they're using different parts of the environment, different parts of the, the world really at different times of the year. And males might be using it differently to females. Juveniles are using it differently to adults. So building this really big picture is it's just such a long-term project. Yeah. Yeah. The scope is just phenomenal. Like I was talking to uh, Janine Illion, um, who does a lot of statistical modeling and she does it um, in terms of ecology. And she, some of the stuff that she did talk about was about the difficulty of modeling all of these behaviors and um, kind of factors that you need to consider when you're doing marine animals, just because of ocean. <laughs> Yeah, it it just adds this whole level <laughs> of complexity. But um, yeah, I think you know so many people want answers right now, which I understand because there is this fear of sharks. But unfortunately, it's just not something that you can do. <laughs> you can't you can't just keep these animals in one space and and continue to monitor them. You have to let them 
do their thing. Do their and thing. that's yeah. what we have to start to understand. How do you do your independent research? Do you have to be tied to an institution or uh, how do you work with other people to get this kind of stuff as an independent? Uh, so I'm, I'm not affiliated with any institutions. Um, I have had different positions along the way, um, which have all been hugely beneficial for my learning and my experience. Um, but at the moment, I just, I wrote um, a book first and it was all just research on my own time. And it was a hugely rewarding thing. Um, but that did open the door to talking to the public, which is um, really you know, something that I, I never got out of any of my university positions. And it's something that has taught me so much in terms of, of just communication. Um, you know, for, for a long time, I was so reliant on numbers and statistics. And yeah. you, know, you, you talk to people and you say, oh, well, statistically speaking, this happens, or you're one in this however number, um, you know, likely to do this. And people just don't respond to that. <laughs> and I sort of wish I had known this before I wrote this. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, just since then, since having all these new opportunities to talk to the public and to talk to kids and, and to sort of have these debates with people, I've just really learned a lot about how to better talk to people. So I'm, I'm just sort of snowballing that and taking every bit that I learned with me and going out and trying to do a bit more and more. It's amazing. But I just go out and, and just try to talk to people. And so the, the research that I do now is it's, it's not so much research anymore. It's more of a communications thing. Um, and when I do, I, you know, I stay up to date on all the publications. I get Google alerts for all, all the shark research papers um, that come out. And I, I just keep reading those. But it's, yeah, it's just all in my own time wow. and all the things that I want to be engaged with and, and keeping abreast with all the new knowledge and using that to then go out and talk to people. Yeah, that's brilliant. Yeah, just being able to keep up with all of it and being able to communicate with you know the entire community who are researching sharks just... Yeah, absolutely wonderful. So we understand that there's a lot of misconceptions out there about sharks and shark behavior. So what motivated you to write a book as opposed to, you know, approaching the communication of this information in other ways? Well, I guess at the time when I wrote the book, research was what I knew. It was how I had been trained and it was really what I, I had done up until then. Um, but I wasn't then affiliated with the university and I wasn't really able to conduct research in the ways that we traditionally think about research. So I then just, um, I guess I just, yeah, thought about what I wanted to know. And I knew that there was a bigger picture than what we were seeing. Research is great, but it's slow as we've talked about. Um, it takes a long time. So by the time that you're really trying to answer a question and then you go out and you do the research, you validate your findings, you do the statistics, you write the paper, and then the paper goes through the review. It's a really long process. It is. So writing the book, I was able to take the research that I knew first off. So I started with the statistics because that was what I knew. Um, but then I didn't want to just do the statistics. I wanted to really inform the community. And to do that, I thought, okay, well, what else is there? What other pieces to the puzzle are there? And so, you know, I, I did my little biology chapter talking about, you know, the biology and the physiology of sharks, because I felt that that was 
important background reading. I knew that you know, most of my readers wouldn't be interested in that, but I also felt <laughs> that there was a need to have that to support arguments that I made down the track. Um, and then I also thought, okay, well, you know, again, what are people going to be interested in? They're going to be interested on how to prevent these things. So I did a lot of research then into the different um, mitigation or prevention strategies um, that are used around the world. So Australia is a bit of a hotspot for shark bites. It's yes. very topical here. We do have some, but we're not alone. There are a few other places in the world. Um, so I was looking at what they were doing. So I, I looked at the legislation as well. Some people actually yes. try to, or some regions try to legislate against things that could lead to shark bites. And um, I think our, our understanding is that that doesn't overly work well. You know, people don't <laughs> like to be told what to do, um, especially, you know, when you're talking about surfers or people who go out and use the water, that's, you know, that's a mindset um, to tell people <laughs> they can't do that. doesn't work too well. Um, but then, yeah, I, I was actually really curious about why people are so afraid. <laughs> These things happen so rarely. And I knew that in my head, but I also, you know, through, even through doing my, my research on neuroscience or whatever it might be, when I told people I studied sharks, you could just see the fear. And I've had people tell me that they don't go in their home <laughs> swimming pool at night because they're scared of sharks. What? Like, yeah. So <laughs> I, I really wanted to understand the fear around it. Why, why we do fear these animals so much when the numbers are so low and when most people haven't even seen a shark or don't live anywhere near the ocean and still they're scared of them. So I did a bit of background research into psychology and I talked to um, researchers in the field and I talked to clinical psychologists um, because that's certainly not my background, but I found it absolutely fascinating. So I looked into that and then um, the, the big turning point for me and, and what really changed how I saw things and how I started to talk to people in subsequent um, strategies was that I really put myself out of my comfort zone and started talking to people who had had these experiences. Because for all I want to say towards the, the line of um, thinking that these are extremely rare events and statistically almost negligible chance of having them happen, sometimes they do. And when they do, they can be extremely traumatic. And you know, they don't just affect a person. If the statistics, that's something the statistics don't show. It's not one person for every bite. It's it's the first responders, it's the people, uh, the, the, the doctors and the paramedics and the community, the family, the friends. So these are things that you don't get until you actually bring the human side into it. Exactly. And as much as I would like to, to remove that to help people understand how small and risk it is, you just can't. It's something that has to be addressed. So, yes, you can't divorce yourself from the, the full impact of the event yeah. just because you know, you've got the numbers there. Yeah, exactly. And you, you'll you never be able to have an argument or, or discussion with someone if you can't accept that people have emotions. And this is how we learn. You know, we learn through storytelling. So everyone's heard about these things. And it is a factor when we talk about shark bites. So I, uh, yeah, like I said, I put myself out there and I just started yeah. basically cold calling or, or reaching out to people to see if they would be interested in sharing their stories with me. I had no experience in journalism or yeah. I had no idea really how to do this. And the first couple of people that 
I talked to, I was terrified. I was, you know, on the phone <laughs> talking to them and I was shaking. I was so scared. And, you know, these are very personal, very emotional experiences that I was they talking are. about. And I didn't, I, you know, had a bit of imposter syndrome. I was like, I don't have the, the skills and the understanding. I'm to just be able a to researcher. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, but, you know, the people that I spoke to were, were so wonderful, so lovely and so brave to share their stories with me. And, you know, I think that I, I learned a lot from them and I was very open with them. And I just tried to convey that I'm just trying to help. I'm trying to help people to understand what you might have been through. And yes, I'm going to be bringing the science into it, but I also want to bring the experience side in. And I, I made some really amazing connections through doing that. Yeah. And it's just absolutely changed the way that I think about the situation and these events and how I've how I've gone on to communicate with people. Yeah, that that's amazing because yeah, you're looking not just only at the psychological and behavioral factors around you know sharks from the sharks perspective, but you're also getting you know the other side as well, getting the human connection, the way that we relate and interact with all of these things. It's yep. yeah, there's a lot to it. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. <laughs> what changed the most for you after speaking to these people about your experiences? I think just really understanding the situation more broadly. Um, like I said, you know, I'd, I'd been used to looking at stats and I just couldn't understand why there was so much fear and why we were making so many decisions in terms of, you know, setting shark nets and um, drum lines and things like that when so few people were actually being bitten. Um, but yeah, just talking to people, I, I really started to grasp that there is just fear and that's not something that is their fault it's it's a very human thing and people are different how we respond to these things is different everyone has a, a different background and it's not just shark bites it's any sort of trauma any sort of emotional experiences and it just it really helped me to understand that everyone is different and it's not anything like there, there's no judging a person and and their beliefs because you don't know what they've been through. You don't know what they've experienced and why they're forming these beliefs. So it really just taught me to, to talk to people and to ask them questions to help them you know, to tell me their story. And then I can start to talk to them because until I understand where they're coming from, I can't then try to help them to understand the situation a bit more realistically and move forward. So a holistic um, way of approaching it. Yeah, and it's it's amazing. Like it, it's really just opened my eyes to to a bit of uh, of human nature, and again, just yeah, how to better talk to people, which has been it's it's been a really fascinating journey, to be honest. Yeah, I can imagine. Like, and the only kind of exposure that we have, if we haven't had direct contact with sharks, is through the media, and you know what we're seeing is the events that occurred, and they get reported to death. And, you know, they talk about the dangers of sharks, but how do we move forward from the fact that this is the kind of fear that w that's being projected on us and how do we kind of move on from there to trying to get a bit better understanding? We're not getting rid of the fear, but how do we work better with sharks? <laughs> well, this is it's something that I have thought about. And again, it's, you know, it's, it's sort of informed what I do now. So in studying the fear, um, fear of predators is a very 
primal fear. You know, it's our, the way that we assess fear is based on how it's helped us to survive, really. So fear is essential to humans still being in existence today. Survival um, instinct, we need that. <laughs> that's, that's right. And so our very earliest ancestors learned to fear predators. Um, they learned to fear things like open spaces and in you know, also confined spaces. Um, so those are very primal fears. They're extremely easy to learn. And like I said, you know, humans are storytellers. So for these really primal fears, all we need is a story. That's why you know, Jaws had such a major influence on how people view sharks, because we were seeing it. We, we were seeing these things happen. And that's all this very deep-seated fear of predators needs in our brain to take hold. So it's a very easily learned fear, and it's one that's extremely hard to get rid of once we have it. Um, but the way that we can deal with these sorts of fears is to sort of beat them to the punch. So, so if, if we can almost immunize ourselves against these things, um, then we have a much better chance of not acquiring the fears if we do hear these stories later on. So I really try to focus on talking to kids now. I love going out there. And to, if I'm very honest, um, one of my fears is children. <laughs> you know, they, they just ask these raw questions and there's no filter and, and so I was very intimidated for a while but now it's become <laughs> one of my favorite things going out and talking to kids about sharks um, but what I try to do when I do that is give them a very fun very engaging session where we just talk about sharks and we talk about all the cool things that they do and um, we just have a good time with it so anything that gives you either positive or even neutral experiences with something that could later cause of fear, um, when you do have that exposure, you're, you're far more likely to be buffered from it because you think, oh, no, wait, you know, I'm hearing this, but actually I know that, you know, there's all these cool things as well. You know, sharks are, are really important to the environment. Yeah. yeah. And so, like I said, I, I try to go to schools. I try to talk to kids. I do sessions through libraries and things like that. But I also really try to, um, get people to go out there and go to aquariums. I'm a, I'm a huge advocate for aquariums. So just seeing these animals and seeing a very realistic impression of what they do, you know, they're not out there just eating everything in sight. They're not, you know, <laughs> swimming through the tank and there's just, you know, like scales and, and blood in the water because they've eaten all their debris. <laughs> it's not how they work. Um, they are doing their thing and coexisting with all, all the other members of, of their enclosures. And so just having these experiences. If you're a bit older, a bit more adventurous, you can go out and go snorkeling or go diving and see sharks in the wild. And you know, the adrenaline that you get from doing that and you know, they're just these really amazing experiences. So anything that you can do to give yourself positive or neutral experiences before you, you might be exposed to the news or stories or things like that is, is really the best way to, to, to tackle some of these fears. Yeah, definitely. And yeah, you, you have to start with education. So with your work consulting and speaking to other people about management strategies and mitigation strategies, I mean, it's one thing to be able to try and inoculate through teaching kids, but how do you approach doing that with adults who have already had that kind of fear instilled? Yeah, it, it's a lot more, it's a lot more difficult because you, they do have these preconceptions um you know they might have heard about things 
through the news or through friends and you tend people tend to associate themselves with people who have the same views and that just reinforces those views so in some cases it's almost impossible to get a message across to people because they are they are very much um you know they know what they know and no matter what you say to them you're not going to get through and you know that's okay but for people who are a bit more on the fence or you know who are maybe undecided or a bit more willing to to reason then you can start to talk about why they might be afraid or what their views are on chart nets why do you think why do you think that chart nets are a good thing and then they might say oh because you know I'm, i want to be protected when i go to the beach and yeah, you know, without trying to scare people, you can say, well, actually, you know, sharks can swim around chart nets, they can swim under them, they can swim over them, and <laughs> yet they're, they're attracting all this bycatch. You know, so many animals are being killed by these shark nets for this, what's a bit of a false sense of security. And, and then you can sort of start to have the conversation and with whatever they come back with, you just, you use different tools in the toolbox, I suppose, to try to address what, what their thinking is. And so it's just information, but it's information based on what they want to know. I'm not just throwing facts. You know, for, for a while, that was my approach. This is what I know. I'm <laughs> going to throw all these facts at you. And I would be talking to a room of people who are just, you could see them sort of, you know, wandering off or going, yeah, no, that's not, that's not what I think. <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, I've really learned to ask questions first and to, to let people tell me what they believe because everyone is entitled to their own opinion. And like I said, it's, exactly. you don't know why they formed that opinion. They might've had an experience that I wouldn't have thought. So it, it, it really just does have to be a conversation and I have to, you know, you have to be on the top of your game. You have to, you <laughs> do have to have all these different tools in your toolbox because you never know what they're going to come out with. But um, yeah, it's, you know, it's a puzzle and it's just a conversation and to try to keep things lighthearted. I don't, I don't need to push my views onto anybody. Um, that's not what I try to do. I just try to have the conversation. Definitely. So as part of that conversation, when people are talking about regional management strategies, I guess because it is so difficult to change minds once people have set in their ideas, a lot of these strategies tend to look like physical barriers or you know, just actual tactile ways of being able to approach it. But have you come away from any of these consultations or have you encountered other people who've tried other novel approaches to trying to handle this? Yeah, there's actually, um, there's a lot of, of work being done in this area. Um, you know, our, our very traditional methods have been uh, shark nets or mesh nets or gill nets, whatever terminology is going around, um, which are these, you know, finite expanses of net that are designed to catch sharks that might be coming into the beach. Um, and then drum lines, which are baited hooks that are um, anchored to the bottom and they've got a float to the top. So the sharks come in. So it's a, basically a passive fishing method. Um, both of these methods have been designed to kill the animals and they, they can kill a lot of other animals as well. Um, and we know that they do, but we, we have things now that are, are called smart drum lines. So this was sort of one of the first really technical developments on these very traditional things. They've, they've got something that as soon as there's a certain amount of, of pressure put on the drum line, on the hook, um, then they send, they basically text whoever is on call. So this was developed in Reunion Island, which is another one of those you know, global hotspots um, for shark bites. And what it does is it really 
it allows people to have a lot more choice in what happens to the animals. So as soon as someone gets this text message, you have someone on call and they can go out straight away. So in New South Wales, for example, the contractor who's responsible has, I think, half an hour to respond. So it's very wow. quick. As Almost as soon as something is caught, someone is out there. And usually the contractors choose to stay out there and just go fishing or have a day on the water. So, <laughs> so it is often a very quick response. And most animals can survive that amount of time on the hook. And so they can be pulled in and released. And it even gives these people the op- option for sharks that might be targeted. So, you know, great white sharks, tiger sharks, which are normally killed um, if they're caught on these things. They might choose to instead tag them and release them. And then we get this information. We can see where they're going. Are they That's going awesome. out to sea or are they coming back into shore where we don't really want them? Um, and so we're, we're then learning. So we're using these things to learn and answer the questions that we need answers to know how to better um, remove the risk or minimize the risk. You'll never remove it. Um, so that's a really good strategy. Other things, um, drones are excellent. You know, people, it, it again comes down to how people think about things. You know, a lot of people out there, they like shark nets because they know that they're there and they feel safe. So it's just a physical kind of safety blanket. Yeah. Yeah. If you tell them that they're not protected, that these nets don't actually prevent (laughs) sharks from coming in, um, then they're, they're shocked. They just, they feel like these are impenetrable barriers that a shark can't get through. Um, So coming back to the drones, you can see, you can hear a drone and it's the same for helicopters and planes. So surveillance, having any sort of monitoring, whether it's human or whether it's, Unmanned, um, it's a very visual signal to people that makes them feel safe or allows them to feel safe. And then they can go out there and do their activity with you know the very whether they work or not. And this is the thing with any sort of mitigation, whether they work or not, the risk is so low that if people are out there and able to focus on something other than you know constantly looking behind them to see if Jaws is coming, um, then it's a win because people are out there doing what they want to be doing. They feel safe, they're enjoying themselves, and the risk is so low. If these things then do add that <laughs> advanced level of security, then it's it's almost a bonus. But you know, the, the technology is getting so good with drones, we can have a program course for them. So they go up and down. Uh, in some places, again, like Reunion Island, they have multiple drones sitting there. So one will run its course, come back, and then while that drone is recharging, then they send another one up. So it's almost That's in cool. some areas, almost constant surveillance. Wow. And then there's all these different um, software packages, technologies that allow them basically, you know, you don't even have to be watching them. We're starting to be able to recognize swimming patterns and discriminate. The, the key is to be able to discriminate between clouds or dolphins or other yeah. things, a, a log that might be swimming in the water and sharks. So we're understanding you know, how sharks move and being able to model that and you know, feed all these algorithms that I don't know anything about into these systems that you know, can say, okay, you know, there's a shark there and no one has ever had to even look at it. The drones are doing their thing, these different programs are doing their thing, but yet all of a sudden we're getting an alert, there's a shark there, you know, let's pull people out of the water. Oh, wow, that, yeah, just the machine learning, all the uh, imaging tech that's required for that, that's awesome, gonna have to look into that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> very, very cool. So. Reunion Alliance of employing all the different strategies together at the same time. 
Yeah, that's it. I mean, there, there is no silver bullet. We, there's, there's nothing that is going to reduce this risk to zero. That will never happen. Sharks are wild animals. They are unpredictable. They're going to do what they're going to do. Motivations are unpredictable. That's it. And, you know, like, you know, more people are killed or, or bitten or injured by their household dog. And, you know, again, I, I don't tend to rely on the statistics too much, but we have to understand that even domesticated animals have the potential to leach out, you know, to lash out if, if something goes wrong, if they feel threatened, if they, um, you know, are whatever the case may be, if they're injured, wild animals are going to do the same. So no matter what we do, we are not going to reduce, reduce this risk to zero. But the more things that we're using, the more different strategies we're employing, if we've got lifeguards on the beach, if we've got drones going back and forth, if we have um, you know, people who are educating themselves and knowing the risks and reducing their likelihood of being in an environment where a shark might be quite active, all these things are going to just continue to lessen the risk. Um, you know, we've got acoustic tags and trackers that are out there and you know, only a small percentage of our sharks are tagged so they're not seeing everything but we're understanding their movement better. And so we might know at this time of the year, sharks are more likely to be in this area because they're, they're mating or because um, juveniles are, are coming out of the river systems and going into the big bad world. Or you know, we're, just, we're starting to understand how they're using the environments a bit better. So all of this coming together is, is really the future of non-lethal, better protection um, strategies that are going to allow us to coexist. Yeah, cool. So going to segue for a little bit. Um, I was told that you co-hosted an event where you invited KISS to perform for sharks. So how did that brilliant idea come about? I can't claim the idea. And I have to say, when I was contacted about it, I honestly thought that it was a hoax. And <laughs> I've, got, I've got a colleague who actually didn't respond to the email <laughs> because he thought it was a hoax. Um, so it was just this wild and wacky idea. Um, so it, it was Airbnb who were launching their experiences, their animal experiences arm of their business. And what they've gone down the path of is providing excellent animal experiences that are sustainable, that um, they've, they've got this huge long list of requirements that the experiences have to tick off before they're willing to back them. So they can't have any you know, major impacts on the environment. They can't be you know, likely to change animal behavior. So it's, it's a really good way of looking at it. And I think a lot of it's kind of setting the trend for the industry. But they wanted to make a, you know, a big deal about this launch of the, um, the experiences. And someone must have thought, you know, what's the biggest impact we can have? <laughs> and so there's a, a company in um, South Australia that does uh, cage diving for white sharks uh, near the Neptune Islands. And there's, there's actually three companies that do that. The other two use bait and they chum the water to lure the sharks in. This company um, couldn't, couldn't get a license to do that, it turns out. And so they had to think of something clever and creative and they tried music. And so what they do is they play music through speakers under the water and we you know, we know that sharks are attracted to different types of well you know obviously different species respond differently but some sharks are attracted to you know these low frequency pulse noises um which can be boats but they thought you know what, we're going to try music and they found that they were getting the sh sharks to come in with music 
Um, so yeah, it's one of these eco-friendly uh, tourism companies. And so Airbnb found them and they thought, well, you know, they use music. Who is the biggest, <laughs> baddest, loud, loudest group that we could get? And they contracted Kiss to come out and do a live performance <laughs> on a boat that they then you know, projected into the water um, off the Neptune Islands to, you know, to just celebrate this launch of, of their wow. experiences. And it was, it was as crazy <laughs> as it sounds. <laughs> um, we had, it was eight people. So eight people were awarded tickets. So it was a very intimate show. Kiss was on a boat that was tethered to the one that we were on. Um, there were far more cameras and cameramen <laughs> and staff than there were guests. Um, but I was, I was invited to come along to be the one to talk to the guests about sharks and to provide any sort of education around these animals. So you know, it wasn't just about the music. It was also about the sharks and, and the environment and yeah, just how people could, could learn more about them and, and, uh, use this as an experience to, to move forward. Yeah. That's a, it's such a great idea. So I saw that like no sharks ended up turning up, which was disappointing. <laughs> so had they used Kiss before for their luring? They had played Kiss before and um, there was some uh, opinion that <laughs> the sharks <laughs> might not prefer Kiss. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it, it's it's actually really funny. I got to know um, this tour operator a little bit and had some conversations with him. And... Um, it's funny because you know different sharks, according to him, have different, different preferences. preferences for artists <laughs> and for songs. And apparently, they hate Baby Shark. Well, that's um, fair. You know, everyone, <laughs> all the guests, always wanted them to play Baby Shark, thinking it'd be amazing. And you know, I don't know if it was a strategy just you know to protect the staff from having to listen to Baby Shark over and over <laughs> again. <laughs> apparently, sharks don't like Baby Sharks. Um, but you know, they said that there was one song that they would play, and reliably, every time that they played that song the same shark would come and circle around the boat. And then Aww. when the song finished, the shark would swim away. And, That's you know, again, cool. it's, it's very seasonal. Sharks are seasonal in the Neptune Islands. They, they come and go at different times. And they, they, there's almost always sharks there, but different individuals utilize the area at different times, different seasons and different ways. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that same shark isn't always going to come back. But for, I think it was like a two-week period. Yeah, reliably, when they played the song, the shark would come around. It's a fantastic area to research if someone was so interested. <laughs> yeah, I, I have lots of questions. And I, I was really um, I was really doubtful, to be honest, when I first heard about it. Um, but, you know, like I said, I'm, I'm not there to prove anyone or to discourage or, or anything like that. And yeah, they, they have great stories. So um, I went out a couple of times and I was a bit unfortunate. I, I didn't get to see any um, when I was out there, but yeah, they've got a great track record of seeing sharks. And it's actually, I, I sort of like the fact that they don't always get sharks to the area because it does feed into that eco-friendly tourism operation yeah. um, avenue. If, if they were conditioning the sharks to come around and to always be there reliably, then that that is changing the shark's behavior. It's encouraging them to stay in a place where as naturally they might be needing to spread out to, to do other things. Uh, so the fact that they aren't always there, I think is a good thing. The fact that they do come in and that they are able to, to show people sharks a lot of the time 
is a great thing. So uh, yeah, I was just unfortunate that I didn't get to see any, but yeah, but it's, yeah, it's definitely it's, it's a great way of fantastic. doing it. Yeah, yeah, it really was. Awesome. So your passion for sharks led to writing Shark Attacks. What prompted you to write the new book that came out this year, Ocean Animals? Well, this came from just that desire, like I said, to, to be talking to kids, to be engaging with kids. Um, yeah, like I, like I said before, we can go to zoos and get these experiences with terrestrial animals. It's, it's quite easy. We have birds, we have all different animals in our backyards. The closer we look, the more we're going to find. And so it's, it's easy to engage with these animals, to appreciate them, um, to learn about them, to know that they're there. That's not the case for our marine animals. We can't just go out and observe fish. Um, you know, some of us are fortunate enough to be able to go diving, um, but you know, there's age limits on being able to dive and even scuba or even snorkel, you know, you have to have the skills and the confidence to be able to do that well. It can be very tricky to pick up for people. And we have, you know, these great aquariums around the the world, around the country, but it's a small part of what what the oceans really hold. So really I I wanted to give kids a way to experience some of these animals. And I know it's just through text, but I tried to paint some really good imagery and to get some really um, quirky stories in there. You know, I wanted to have a mix of, animals that kids would know you know we there's dolphins and whales and turtles um but also some animals that i had never even heard about so i'd (laughs) I'd be pretty well guaranteed that you know the kids who are reading these books had never heard of them either (laughs) and there are some crazy animals out there you know the more more research i did i just i fell in love with this marine world all over again and yeah it's just intriguing so i really wanted to have some hooks in there that through my words and through pictures that, you know, I've, I had colleagues who provided some absolutely amazing photographs. Um, there's some great illustrations in there. And I just wanted to, to hook the kids a little bit, to give them that little incentive to go out there and either watch some videos online of these animals or to think about them a bit more critically if they had a school project to do, to go out and talk to their family or friends and, and give them a reason to start to think about the marine world in different ways and if, if opportunities came up for them to be thinking about you know school projects or whatever and and to just give them that bit of a drive to to learn more in whatever ways they could whether it's just reading about it or whether they you know grab their parents pack up the car and get to the beach <laughs> for a day and take some photos or you know splash in the waves whatever it might be but just yeah to start to gain some of these experiences and start to to help them to understand that there is a whole another part of our world that we're not seeing every day. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, it's such a great resource and it covers such a wide variety of sea life, which is amazing. Like you just get this massive cross section, but with, you know, so many to choose from, how did you decide what to include and what to cut? (laughs) It was very hard. (laughs) Um, I had to cut a lot of text. Um, (laughs) But yeah, like I said, you know, I wanted to, have this mix of animals that they would know and animals they didn't know. And I set myself challenges with introducing some, some new things. I was looking at the different, um, the different families of animals, the different um, genera and all that. And I wanted to have a really good 
representation of all the different things. You know, we know a lot about marine mammals. We know a lot about fish, but that's a fraction of what's out there. And you never know what's going to intrigue someone. What might be really interesting for someone is going to be very different. So I wanted to try to just open up this world and give a bit of a glimpse into how diverse it is. You, know, you cannot imagine, you can't even begin to imagine all the different things that are out there. But I just, you know, tried to pick and choose and I had a spreadsheet up of, of all the different, you know, groups of animals that can be found in the marine world. And I was ticking them off and I tried to, tried to tick off one, at least in each of these groups, just to show a bit of the spread and the diversity. And yeah, like I said, just to try to get the kids hooked. Yeah, it's brilliant. So in doing your research and preparation for shark attacks and ocean animals, how were your approaches different in terms of the way that you handled, you know, I guess, storyboarding and, you know, just writing for the two different audiences? Trial and error. <laughs> I, yeah, when I when I wrote the shark attacks book, I had never written a book before, and um, in scientific publishing and journal manuscripts and things like that, uh, when I was taught to write these publications, um, one of the one of the lessons that, or one of the things that my supervisor told me was take for every two words, turn it into one, and so it's all <laughs> about you know short, very sharp messaging. There is no there's no time to tell a story so it was really you know trying to take that very scientific writing mindset and turn it into something that could be followed could be engaging and it did it it took lots of reviews I had a fantastic team at CSIRO, CSIRO publishing to work with and they were very patient with me um, and you know they I think you could really see from from the comments and the feedback I was getting you could really see where my scientific brain turned on. Like for example, in the statistics chapter, um, which I wrote first, and the um, the anatomy section, which I wrote quite you know quite far in the beginning because those are the things I knew, and then some of the other chapters that I then had to push myself in, the writing was very different because one of them turned on my scientific brain, and the other one I hadn't focused on in that light before. Um, so it was a bit more conversational because I was almost trying to explain it to myself because yeah. you know, I'm, I don't have any training in psychology. So I had to really try to understand it. And in trying to explain it to myself and understand it, I was then explaining it to the audience as well. Um, but I had to I had to sort of merge <laughs> the two so that it, it sounded and it looked like one person wrote the book and yes. <laughs> um, so that it was easy to read and that it flowed and was consistent and all that. Um, so it took a little bit of time and same for the ocean animals book. I had never written for kids before and I, I was so heavily reliant on feedback from, from both CSIRO publishing. And I also um, chose a few kids that I knew and I was sending chapters out to them saying, <laughs> do you understand this? Is it interesting? Did you like it? And again, you know, I, I was going out to these kids going, did you like my work? And you know, their opinion meant so much to me. And I was so nervous about how it was going to come back and how, how it would be received. Um, but yeah, just trial and error and feedback and revising and learning. Oh, amazing. Just such a great learning process. <laughs> it was, yeah, it was, it was fantastic. 
I, it, both times I've submitted the final manuscripts, I've actually been really sad because oh. I've just had so much fun working on these things and I get very excited about them if you can't tell. Yeah. And so having them kind of come to a close has been very bittersweet and <laughs> something that I had, I've been almost had to, you know, I was going through a bit of withdrawal. Oh no, guess you have to write another book. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. <laughs> On top of authoring, you're also shark editor at Australian Geographic, and we've already touched a bit on your consulting work for sharks and shark attacks. But you know, you've also got your consulting business helping others with their own academic and scientific communication. I understand scientific communication in terms of education, but you know what what prompts you to help others with this kind of area? Science communication, I, I find it really fun. I find it absolutely fascinating. And it, it sort of blends my interests. So it's it's something that I've sort of happened into almost, but I couldn't have picked a better field to get into, a better a better way to spend my time really. It, you know, most of what I do, it none of it feels like work. Um, so when I'm trying to help other people with their science communication, I get this amazing experience of being able to, to research a field that I've had no experience in, in in most cases, um, understand it well enough to then be able to go back to them and help them to take what they've done, which is often very technical, often very scientific. And again, you know, it's every two words has become one word. So <laughs> helping them to then use that to tell a story. Um, and whether they're writing a grant, which would then, it's basically a story for the granting body, um, or if they're um, writing a project report, then it's a report for whoever's funded it. Um, there's all these different audiences. So first understanding the audience, which is something that I have learned how to do through my work. Um, you, you first have to identify your audience and then you have to understand <laughs> what they're looking for, what their background is and why, why they're wanting to talk to you in the first place. And then being able to translate into those terms. So for a granting body, obviously they're going to want a return on their investment. They're going to be in a specific field. They're going to want to be seeing benefits to different people. So understanding all those things and and then fitting the terms. So you know, I, I work. I'm so fortunate to work with people who have amazing ideas. They're phenomenal scientists and so creative and just brilliant in what they're planning. So it's really easy to get excited about it. So it's then just taking that excitement and showing whatever audience it is why it's exciting for them and yeah it's it's like a puzzle and i just love it i get so interested in it and i become so so involved that sometimes i have to remind myself wait this isn't this my isn't project, my project. This, is, this is someone else's but it's just it's finding the excitement and finding um the interest and how you can engage with people and so it's it's just this resounding theme through everything i do understanding your audience being able to engage with them and then just conveying the excitement because there is everything that's being worked on that I've, I've been lucky enough to be a part of is so exciting. It's just, you know, finding that thing that makes it exciting for all the different audiences. Oh yeah. Just being able to help hype things up for everyone else. That's just such a good job. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh, brilliant. Okay. So we might start to move on to some of those other questions. Um, so, what hobby or interest do you have that's most unrelated to your field of work? 
I became very interested in photographing insects. <laughs> so, again, you know, it's, um, I don't know. Well, I guess I sort of do know how, how, how it happened. I, I like being outside. And with my kids, I was wanting them to be outside. And I'm also very scientifically minded. I love different animals. And insects have never been something that's really registered to me. But then as I was trying to, well, I guess it really it's stemmed from their curiosity and their just, you know, excitement around everything. Everything is new. Everything is exciting. And they'd see an ant. And for me, an ant is just, you know, we see them all the time. And they're, they're either in my house or they're outside, but it's just part of life. But, you know, as you're raising very young kids and they're seeing these things for the first time, they're fascinated by an ant. And I sort of yeah. think, you know, I, I really wanted to get back to that passion for things that I just took as commonplace. And yeah. so one of the things that I did, I, I was trying to learn more about them. What kind of ant is that? Or, you know, what kind of grasshopper is that? And so I started taking photos of them and I started you know, getting closer and closer and, um, and, but, you know, I've, I just use my phone, <laughs> I just you know, my <laughs> iPhone most of the time because I usually have it in my pocket. But as I was starting to do these things, you know, I was getting some really awesome photos and, you know, they're not going to win any awards, <laughs> but it really helps you to see these things. And, you know, I'm all about diversity. I'm all about what makes things unique and why things have features that they have. And by just starting to look in my own backyard for things and then seeing them a bit closer to what I normally would. <laughs> I just got so excited and I, I probably got a bit carried away. In fact, <laughs> I think I almost turned my kids off of looking at bugs because they'd see something oh, and then wow, oh, mom's going to take a picture and then I'd take a couple pictures and I'd want to get close and I'd want to get this angle and yeah, they've, they've left <laughs> and I can hear them going, oh, she's taking pictures again. <laughs> so I've had to, I've had to pull myself back a little bit, but, um, yeah, it's become a bit of a hobby. <laughs> oh, that's cool. So what else do you do with it? Just use it for you know, researching what sort of insect it is? Um, I don't do much with them. I just, it, it's given me, I guess it's just given me a chance or an, a reason to look at things a bit closer. Yeah. And um, I, yeah, I, I guess it's sort of similar to what I was saying about you know, the ocean. I'm seeing this whole new world that I had just sort of been blinkered to before because in my adult life it was just you know it was just walking I, I would walk are. through something yeah. instead of just really taking the time to look around and exactly. so yeah if, if I'm really busy I will and I, I can see I'm working 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 and I'm not having any breaks I've, I've started almost building just five minutes into my day where I would go outside and try to find an insect that I hadn't seen before. And I still don't know what most of them are. <laughs> but <laughs> just taking that time to go outside and, and check check my plants and see if I could find something that I hadn't seen before. And it gave me a reason to just have a bit of a breather and to go outside for a minute, to stand up and you know get the blood moving again. And um, it's yeah, a great it's little mini really meditation. Good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> awesome. Okay, and which childhood book holds the strongest memories for you? <laughs> um, I'd have to say Winnie the Pooh. I was a big <laughs> Winnie the Pooh fan, and even um, probably longer than I should have been. But for some reason, you know, I just, I became, I don't know, it was a calming sense for me. And even when I knew the stories, I remember having a tape, like a cassette tape because I'm old, <laughs> and I would <laughs> tape 
when I couldn't sleep at night, uh, you know, as I got a bit older, if I was having trouble sleeping, if I was thinking, worried about exams or whatever it might be, and I would just play this cassette of the stories, and I knew them so well that I wouldn't have to focus on them, um, but it was just a, something that was calming, and I knew it would just switch off when it got to the end of the side, so I wasn't, didn't have to wake up and turn anything <laughs> off, and um, yeah, so I feel like we have just got these strong ties that in different um, different parts of my childhood I used the Winnie the Pooh stories in different ways and I used to draw the characters out of them and um so yeah it was a way that I sort of engaged a bit with the arts I wasn't much of a of an arts kid um but it sort of gave me gave me a few reasons to to dabble (laughs) I suppose and um yeah yeah so what engaged you so much about Winnie the Pooh I have no idea. You know, I was thinking about this question and I can't remember the first time that I heard the stories. I know that you know, my mom used to read them to me every once in a while. Um, but I, I, I can't remember when I first got into it or what my first experience was. But I, I do have these different sort of categorized memories of the stories in different ways, different parts of my life and, and how I use them in different aspects of my life. So, yeah. yeah. Oh, that's lovely. Yeah. I think occasionally, like, there's always a book that you, it's inexplicable, but it kind of, it's like a safety blanket. You don't know what yeah. it is. It's just a thing that's comfortable. Yep. That's exactly what it was. Yeah. <laughs> Great. And lastly, what advice would you give someone who'd like to do what you do and what advice should they ignore? So advice as to what I would recommend is to just be open to things. Um, like I said, when I did my undergraduate degree, I was very, um, displeased with the fact that I had to take all these different core curriculum classes. I had to take English. I hated English when I was a kid. Um, And I had to take organic chemistry and uh, I couldn't think of anything worse than getting up and going to my organic chemistry class. Um, But a lot of the classes that I was forced to take, I either really got into at the time. So for science classes in particular, all the things that I didn't think I had any interest in, the more I learned about them and the more involved I became with them, the more fascinated I became with those subject areas. And then other things like, like I was saying, you know, I, I had to do English and I'm so grateful now that I had to do English because <laughs> I use it every day. And it's, it's this foundation from having that, um, that training, that very um, high level training in you know, undergraduate level English that I, I use. And if I didn't have that, I wouldn't be where I was now. So, you know, try to think of things as an opportunity, even if you don't want to do them, embrace them. You might not, you might not love it at the time, but you never know when it's going to come in handy. Um, and you never know how you might end up using it five, 10, 20 years down the track. So yeah, exactly. Yeah, try to embrace it. Um, and as well, if you're interested in something, the other thing that I would recommend to myself if I could go back, you know, 20 years is to think broadly. Um, so, you know, it's very easy if you're very, if you're really passionate about something, it's easy to sort of pigeonhole yourself. Um, but if you can follow your passion, but also take a bit of a broader scope to it, um, you know, if you're doing your undergraduate or postgraduate studies in a, in a field, that's when it's especially easy to pigeonhole yourself, but yes. learn techniques that are very broadly applicable because again, you don't know when you'll be able to use them or if whatever you know, little niche that you're going down 
doesn't pan out or you you change your mind, you want to um, branch out, you've got a lot more options if you've learned you know, some of these broader, more applicable techniques that are that are very topical, even if you don't think that you're going to be using them then. So yeah, to try to stay a bit broad and to always think outside the box. You never know what's going to come up or what might what might be beneficial to you. Um, you know, don't don't think that there's only one way to do something. Look for the new ways to do things. Be innovative, be creative, and don't sell crazy ideas short. You you just never <laughs> know what's going to what's going to be the winner. Exactly. Yeah. Just keeping options open and just being able to think about all of these other potential ideas that could come from whatever it is that you're doing now. Yeah, exactly. You never know. You never know what the future is going to be. <laughs> yeah, just prepare yourself and, and be open to things and yeah, find those little insects that excite you and <laughs> yeah. stop. Yeah, think about think about how children see the world and it's yeah, it's been one of those great little lessons that I've learned. <laughs> find the excitement in everything. Oh yes, definitely. You need to keep that wonder. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's what I love about the ocean. There's so much, so much that we don't know. It's so easy to just have this sense of wonder, sense of curiosity, and just sense of awe at, at everything because, you know, it's just, it's an amazing part of our planet that uh, you, we just know so little. So there's so much opportunity. Yes, definitely. And the, yeah, with, again, as you described, all the new technology coming out, helping us to, you know, get all of this extra information to be able to learn all these new things about the things that, you know, we're just scratching the surface of. It's fantastic. Yeah. Uh, the things that we're going to learn that we never knew that we didn't know, um, yes. you know in the next five, 10, 50 years, it's, I can't wait. I'm so excited to see what, yes, what comes out next. Very much. Yeah. Just yeah, sky's the limit for that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So Thank you so much for speaking to me today, Blake. It's been absolutely wonderful and just really inspiring listening to you speak about how excited you have all of this and you know, <laughs> learning about sharks. I crash course a bit last night, but my goodness, like so much <laughs> scope and so much stuff around all of this. And you know, I, I love psychology. So the fact that all of this is kind of focusing on the psychology on both sides is just mind blowing to me. It's great. So if people would love to learn more about what you do and the kind of work that you do, where can they do that? Uh, I've got a website that talks about the different things that I do. So it's uh, blakechapmancoms.com. Um, you can usually just Google me and somewhere <laughs> along the list um, I'll come up. Um, yeah, that's probably the best way. Uh, I am on social media, although not as much as I should be, I'm afraid. Um, <laughs> Yeah, the website is probably the best. <laughs> yeah, brilliant. Okay, so thank you again so much for this. It's been wonderful speaking to you today. And yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing all the other stuff that you're working on, maybe next book. But yeah, <laughs> just loved reading your book so far. I haven't finished it yet. I've kind of just skimmed the chapter so far, but oh, so interesting. Oh, thank you. I really appreciate that. Yeah, anytime someone says that they've gotten something out of it, that's that's why you do it. Um, and yeah, I love hearing stuff like that. Thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs> Not a problem. Okay. Well, thank you again and have an amazing day. Thank you. You too. It's difficult to not be enthused about sharks after speaking with Blake. And it's such a great perspective to consider the psychology of shark and shark attack from both shark and human perspectives. 
There's so much we still have to learn about sharks and their role in our global ecosystem. So it's been wonderful to learn about how new technologies have been deployed, not only to help mitigate the risk of shark attack, but also provide more avenues to research the behaviours of our marine life. To learn more about Blake and what we discuss in the show, or to connect with us, please visit the Steam Powered website at steampoweredshow.com. You can also find out more about Blake's work on her website at blakechapmancoms.com and social media, the links for which will be in the show notes. If you enjoyed this conversation and want to hear more like it, subscribe to this podcast and share this with your geeky or geek-curious friends. You can also support Steam Powered on Patreon and Ko-fi under Steam Powered Show, the links for which will also be in the show notes. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you next time.